Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. In most cases, when we are having some kind of encounter with another person or, or even, a, even an animal in some cases, but when we're encountering life in the world, it's almost always colored by um, this emotional coloration that goes with it. For example, the same action, let's say that uh, my wife makes me some coffee in the morning, right? And, um, and I may experience that action completely different depending on um, whether uh, we read poetry just before that, the night before, or made love or whether we had an argument that morning or the night before. In other words, the, the context provides this emotional coloring in terms of how I experience her making coffee. And when we do this kind of reflection, what we're really trying to do is to, is to set aside that emotional coloring. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Greg, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Yeah, it is. Uh, it was really great to have you here. You know, I, I came across your story actually uh, by way of somebody in your organization who wrote in to tell me a little bit about what you do, and uh, I was immediately intrigued and very curious about it. Uh, but today, I want to start the show a little bit differently than we normally do, and I want to start by asking you what the earliest memory you have from childhood it is that you feel has ultimately led to where you're at and what you're doing today. Well, the earliest um, memory that has actually had some influence, at least as far as I know, on what I'm doing. Um, Though I can probably remember a few things that go back to even when I was maybe three or four, probably the most poignant memory that I have and and one of the most powerful memories that has influenced me was when I was about eight to nine years old. I had a younger brother who was uh, three years younger than me. And my grandmother, my mother's mother, had diabetes. She was living in a nursing home, and she had (coughs) my mother's mother, uh, my grandmother, was living in a nursing home, and she had uh, first one leg and then her second leg amputated. So my mother was kind of sandwiched in between trying to take care of two young boys and trying to attend to her mother, who who was very severely ill. Uh, and when my mother would want to go visit her in the nursing home, she would kind of call her kids and said, we're going to go visit grandma. Um, but I didn't want to go. And, um, I, I was a athlete and I wanted to be playing with my friends and playing basketball and playing 
baseball and, and doing fun things. I didn't like the nursing home. I didn't like how it smelled. I didn't like all the old people who were there. Um, and so I would not only not cooperate, but I would, would really resist things. I would pout. I would argue. Um, uh, sometimes I would cry or make excuses or pretend to be sick. In other words, I would cause a great deal of difficulty to my mother in terms of trying to her trying to get us to go on this visit to grandma in the nursing home. And when I first remembered this, and I remember this during a, a retreat uh, that I did many years ago in Japan, where you would spend about 15 hours a day uh, facing a blank wall and going back and actually remembering your life in, in specific stages and in relation to specific people. And um, hopefully I'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. But that's when I first kind of thought of this. I was in my 30s at the time. And, uh, and the first time I remembered it, I actually uh, felt a little bit bad. But uh, I thought, well, I was only eight years old. It's really, what, what do you expect from an eight-year-old? But it, it was probably at, at my second or third retreat when I remembered the same memory, but I remembered it in a very different way. And I realize now that what was different about it was it was the first time that I was able to put myself in my mother's shoes in the sense that I wasn't remembering that incident exclusively from my perspective, but I actually felt like I had a sense of what that was like for her. And during that experience, when I, when I actually remembered it, um, feeling like I was putting myself in her shoes... Um, it had a tremendous impact on me emotionally. I, I really felt felt it in my body. I actually cried uh, at that point in the retreat because I realized that her experience was probably such a struggle trying to balance this obligation to her, both her kids and to her mom and then having her oldest son create this kind of experience every time she wanted to go there. Uh, and so it just broke my heart to think that um, I had caused her that kind of suffering. And as I say that, some of your listeners might think, you know, it, it's a bad thing uh, that I'm feeling guilty and I'm feeling bad. But actually, it was a wonderful thing because it gave me a sense of what it was like for my mom to deal with me as a child, whereas my normal perspective, not just as a kid, but into my 30s was always, what is it like for me to have this person as my mom? Um, which, of course, opened up all kinds of possible ways for me to complain and criticize uh, the way she had raised me or the way she had treated me. So the result of that was that um, it changed it, that and other memories really changed my relationship with my mother. Um, I felt uh, I could really now look at a relationship that had been very tense and conflicted for decades in a much different way, it softened my heart towards her. We actually, I actually wrote her a thank you note after that particular retreat. Um, first time in my life, I actually wrote her anything like that, and it it turned our relationship um, into something very different. Not some perfect mother son relationship, and it wasn't without its difficulties. But we were able to basically have. Um, uh, a relationship as mother and son in a way that I think ended up for the next 30 some years. My mother just died actually a few months ago in hospice. And for the next 30 some years, we were able to have a very different relationship than we would have had if it wasn't for that memory and memories like those. Hmm. 
in our own lives, um, when we look back on memories, especially painful ones of, of people who have hurt us, uh, how do we develop the capacity to see things uh, from their perspective? And well, it's a, it's a good p- question, you know, that how do we develop the capacity to put ourselves in another person's shoes, you know, whether it be our husband or wife or uh, an aging parent or someone we work with at, in our uh, work setting, you know, how do we actually um, get outside of our normal perspective as we go through the day in many cases with this experience that we're the center of the world, that everything kind of revolves around our experience how do we get out of that and put ourselves in another person's shoes? And and one of the interesting things about that question is that <clears throat> um, uh, I remember years ago listening to uh, an NPR episode and they were um, talking with uh, M. Scott Peck, a well-known author, at least at the time, um, who had wrote this book called The Road Less Traveled. And they were asking him about good and evil. And I found that his the way he defined evil, if you if you think there is such a thing, but the way he defined it uh, was fascinating to me because he defined evil as the inability to put ourselves in another person's shoes. The inability to put ourselves in another person's shoes, and um, so if if you if you accept that just for the sake of discussion, then it's really important that we develop that capacity, you know, to basically see things through the eyes of another person and, and to be able to shift our perspectives. So instead of my looking at my mother and thinking, what is it like for me to have this woman at my, as my mother, um, that I can basically turn that around and say, what is it like for my mother to actually have someone like me as a son? Mm-hmm. And that to me is like opening the door to what I consider to be um, the process of self-reflection, the process of really examining ourselves, examining our conduct in the world, examining the way that we're living. Um, and, and by doing so, it opens up possibilities for how we can make changes and how we might be able to do things different and live differently, um, and even um, opens up possibilities that take us all the way into the spiritual realm or religious realm of faith. So it's a very important door to open. Um, and in terms of how we do it, I don't know that there's a mathematical equation in terms of how to get there. Yeah. But I would say from my personal experience, um, the, the most important thing is practice. In other words, um, we, we somehow get the sense that this is something important that we need to do in our lives. Um, and we begin doing it. And just like with most things, we're not very good in the beginning. Um, but the more we practice reflecting on ourselves and our lives in our relationships, I think the more likely it is that we're able to put ourselves in the other person's shoes. So how do you separate, uh, like very strong emotions towards a person? Like, let's say somebody who's hurt you or somebody who has betrayed you (laughs) in some way. Um, and you feel just like horrible things towards them. And yet you want to put yourself in their shoes. Do you, do you understand my question? Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and, um, the, process that I'm describing to you actually has a, excuse me, the process that I'm describing to you actually has a Japanese name. It's called Nikon. Um, It's, we pronounce it like we actually kind of mispronounce the camera, Nikon, um, spelled N-A-I-K-A-N. And in Japanese or in English, it means something like inside looking or looking from the inside. 
and when I first began studying this process, which, which was really a question of um, studying it through my own personal experience and my own personal life, um, one of the things that I learned was that um, in most cases, when we are having some kind of encounter with another person or, or even, a, even an animal in some cases, but when we're encountering life in the world, it's almost always colored by um, this emotional coloration that goes with it. For example, the same action, let's say that uh, my wife makes me some coffee in the morning, right? And, um, and I may experience that action completely different depending on um, whether uh, we read poetry just before that, the night before, or made love, or whether we had an argument that morning or the night before. In other words, the, the context provides this emotional coloring in terms of how I experience her making coffee. And when we do this kind of reflection, what we're really trying to do is to, is to set aside that emotional coloring to just look objectively as much as we can at the facts of the situation. The facts in that example being, I received a cup of coffee from my wife, right? How I felt about that or what I felt towards her is really um, my subjective experience that comes from that encounter. But the fact of the situation that is very clear when I set aside that emotional coloring is I received a cup of coffee from her. And so I think that... Um, <clears throat> So part of this process is to essentially give people a structured method of reflection that uh, encourages them, almost requires them to set aside um, their feelings and emotions towards this other person to just look at the facts of the situation. Hmm. So what in the world uh, led you down the path of seeking this kind of work in this journey? I mean, talk to me about all of that like from where you started uh, as a kid to where you're at today? Well, um, I grew up in a family uh, where there were mixed religions. My mother um, was Jewish and my father was Catholic. And there was a fair amount of conflict through the extended families um, about the differences in those religions and so I never really had a very positive view of uh, religion as I grew up in my family. We were exposed both to Judaism and Catholicism, but I basically associated it as, with a, a, as a source of uh, conflict. And so when I got into college, I became interested in Buddhism. And that interest grew. I became interested in meditation uh, and ultimately was very fortunate to actually find um, some wonderful teachers who were Buddhist teachers, uh, both here and ultimately in Japan. Uh, and I think that that's, that's kind of what pulled me into the work that I'm doing now, because for many years uh, in the field that I was in, <coughs> excuse me, for many years in the field that I was in, which was organizational psychology, um, I had an interest in clinical psychology, but when I would go into a bookstore and look at the psychology books on the shelves, things like Looking Out for Number One or How to Get the Love You Want, um, and then I would look at that next to these wonderful spiritual principles I was learning in terms of studying um, Buddhism and Eastern philosophy, things like selflessness and service and compassion. 
And it always seemed like a mismatch. It always seemed like Western psychology had um, a great focus on, on self-centeredness, that it was almost the essence of Western psychology. And, it, and it, so I never was really drawn to it until I stumbled on a book in a bookstore um, by a man named David Reynolds that was on Japanese psychology. Uh, and I read that, and it was such a good fit for me in terms of where I was at in my life at that time, being interested in, in Japan, studying Buddhism. Um, and here was an approach, actually several approaches to psychology, that really drew on these principles from Eastern philosophy and Asia and Japan and Buddhism um, and, and made perfect sense to me compared to what I had been exposed to in terms of Western psychology. So that kind of lit this little fire in me to get more involved um, and ultimately you know, letting, led me to study actually for a few years with the author of that book, with David, and then go off to Japan and do uh, additional work and study over a period of years uh, off and on in Japan. Um, and ultimately, um, I made this my life's work in 1992. I moved to Vermont with um, Linda, who then later became my wife, and we founded a, um, a center here in Vermont that uh, is really the only place in uh, North America that, that kind of teaches um, uh, this type of work to people. We have retreats and programs and online programs. But um, but a lot of it really comes back to discovering that there was approaches to psychology that were grounded in a very different um, view of how the world is and how the world is supposed to be that really came from Asia uh, and Buddhism as opposed to Western psychology, which almost always is traced back to European roots. So before we get into the principles uh, that you guys talk about, I, I want to ask you uh, one other question. You know, given the importance of these kinds of topics uh, in our lives, why do you think we're not exposed to them so much earlier? Like, why is it that nobody sits you down in high school and asks you to start considering things like greater meaning or greater purpose in life? Do you think we're just not mature enough to be able to uh, contemplate things like that? Well, you know, it's a good question in terms of why it isn't more um, a bigger part of our educational system. Mm -hmm. And um, I think uh, on the one hand, I think it's because in the public school system, um, we have such a taboo on, on uh, introducing religion, except in the, the most extremely objective ways, you know. And, and so kids who basically grow up and go to school in the public school system, which I did, um, really have very little exposure. The idea is that, you know, religion is supposed to be something you learn at home or in church. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, my daughters were in public school and homeschooled until high school, and they're now in a Catholic school, even though, um, uh, as I mentioned before, I'm, I've basically been involved in Buddhism for three decades. But what I find in a Catholic school, which is even though they have their own take, of course, on religion and Catholicism, is the topic of uh, faith, of belief, um, is opened up, right? And depending on who the teacher is, that they may be more or less open to what people think. But for my kids, it's actually opened up questions that they have that wouldn't have gotten raised, I think, in the public school system. The, the second thing that I see that I think is changing in um, both public and private school is a shift towards seeing uh, character education, qualities 
like, for example, gratitude, qualities like um, empathy, self-reflection, um, self-control, seeing those qualities as things that actually need to be considered as an important part of a child's education in school, not simply just um, developing cognitive skills or subject matter like uh, math, math and science and, and English. So I think there's, there's a shift moving in that direction in our school system. Mm-hmm. I don't really think there's a shift moving in the direction of spirituality, but I do think there's a shift moving in that direction uh, in, in terms of character education. But without those two things, um, most of our exposure is really towards cognitive development and studying you know, kind of traditional um, content. Um, and these kinds of questions of, of meaning and purpose and gratitude and faith um, don't really get addressed, except maybe in a particular single class at the high school level, but mostly they just don't get addressed in our educational system. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I even wonder, you know, at the college level, why we're not exposed to these. I mean, I had uh, my friend Cal Newport here uh, a few months back, and he said, you know, I think there's a reason you're finding interest uh, from college instructors in, in what you're talking about here on the show. He said, because if you looked at a classical education uh, prior to sort of the modern education system as the byproduct of an industrial revolution, living a meaningful life, living a life of distinction, you actually spent time thinking about that and working on that in college. And I can tell you, I can't remember one moment in college where something like this ever crossed my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> so I think it's a, it's a missing piece. There, there's no question about it. And, and then if you think about what happens then is that um, people get a public education, uh, kids get a public education, they go off to college, maybe to graduate school, and <clears throat> they go out into the world and they may be brilliant computer programmers and they may be brilliant astronomers or wonderful wildlife biologists. But... Um, but then you get in a relationship with somebody, right, um, in terms of an intimate relationship or your parents start getting older and you find that you're dealing with questions of how do you deal with, you know, your aging parents. Um, and because there's been no exposure to some of the uh, concepts that we've, we've been mentioning, mm-hmm. um, you really have no experience and you've got no guidance in terms of how to work with those things. Uh, and, and so at least some percentage of the population turns to counseling and psychotherapy. But uh, the thing about counseling and psychotherapy from a Western standpoint is that it also has a long tradition of um, uh, staying away from anything that has to do with spirituality or religion. Mm. So, um, so you end up in a, a very secular setting, even though a lot of people who are struggling in their life will say that um, things like faith or their um, their religious beliefs are an important part of that. But in a counseling section, um, it's unlikely to come up or it's unlikely that the counselor actually has any training in working with that kind of idea. So, so I think we leave people struggling a lot um, in our culture uh, because we don't provide guidance or direction to people in terms of some of what you might call these softer areas um, that don't have to do with the with, uh, the practical aspects of, of living and working and the vocation that one chooses. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So one question about the period uh, working as an organizational psychologist, what did you learn from organizational psychology that you apply to your work today? I think probably one of the areas that um, was most helpful to me was in the area of teamwork. And... um, uh, and I think in terms of my work today, um, you know, what I see is that most of us have to work in some kind of a team setting, even if we're independent, even if you're an independent um, contractor or a consultant, you're, you're probably working at some level on a team basis with other people. 
And I think that <clears throat> learning how to be an effective team member um, uh, within an organizational setting has some real similarities to learning how to be uh, effective within a particular community, within a family setting. You know, those are all, and, and even within a sports team setting, I think those are all variations on what it means to, um, uh, to be part of a team. Uh, and I think that, again, we all often don't have good models for that in terms of our childhood. Uh, and so we get into work settings and, and we kind of have to figure out for the first time um, how to do that effectively. Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears and let's actually get uh, into the meat of your work and these principles and practices and philosophies that have really shaped what you do. And I'd love for you to talk about uh, the self-reflection component as well as the other piece uh, through the lens of your own stories and your own experiences with it. All right. Well, <clears throat> we can start with with uh, self-reflection, which I mentioned the term that's used in Japan is called Nikon. Um, and so... Uh, I can remember this fairly vividly, which was um, being in Japan. I had been in Japan before, but specifically going there uh, to do my first retreat and um, changing trains in Nagoya, which is a big, busy uh, train station, getting on this little train out to a little town called Kuwana, small little train station, getting off the train, um, <clears throat> looking around, having no idea where I was, um, Fortunately, getting picked up by this, uh, I was in my 30s, this young Japanese man who was probably in his early 20s and who spoke English, um, and then being driven for 20 or 30 minutes into these rice paddies, um, and ultimately to a place that was a Buddhist temple um, that also functioned as a Nikon center where people can go and do this reflection. Uh, <clears throat> the man who was in charge of the center, in this case, was a Buddhist priest, um, and uh, basically, I was um, given a space in a large hall with two little screens on my right and left and some cushions to sit on and a kind of blank wall to face. And then um, for the next two weeks, I really went through my life um, looking at both segments in, in terms of years of my life and individual relationships. So for example, um, traditionally, you would always start with reflection on your mother and, and I would look at um, reflecting on my mother from the time I was born, at least as early as I could remember, uh, until I was um, six years old. And I was asked, you know, to look at three questions, which was during that period of time, what did I receive from my mother? Um, what did I give to her during that same period of time? And what troubles and difficulties did I cause her? I used those three questions as a way of uh, structuring my reflection. Um, and I'd have about two hours, and at the end of two hours, someone would come and they would ask me what I remembered. And I would just simply answer those questions. I remembered receiving from my mom um, that she took me to um, swimming lessons, that she uh, encouraged me to um, practice the piano when I was young, that uh, <clears throat> she um, uh, got me my first uh, job as kind of a little kid um, stuffing papers at a, um, an all-night pharmacy, which is where she worked. And so I would remember these very practical, specific things, and then I would look at what I gave to her, which during my early years was, was really very little or nothing, um, and then the troubles and difficulties that I caused her, um, which, again, were extensive, um, particularly for a young, kind of a rebellious kid 
um, in his early childhood years. Uh, and then I'd move on to the next three-year period and the next three-year period um, until I basically got all the way through my life until the present day of my life. Uh, and then I would reflect on my father. And then over time, I reflected on ex-girlfriends. I reflected on my grandparents, on my younger brother, on um, teachers and on best friends that I had. Um, coaches, actually, uh, someone who was really influential, who coached me in basketball during my junior high school years. So everybody who was playing a key role in my life, um, I had a chance to really step back, look at this period of time, a few years at a time, look at these questions, what did I receive from this person, what did I give to them, and what troubles and difficulties did I cause? Um, <clears throat> and over the course of two weeks, um, I had a chance to really um, construct a film of um, how I had lived my life um, from as far back as I could remember up until the present day. It wasn't kind of a smooth film like what you, you know, watch when you go to the movie theaters. It was very choppy, but it had very discreet little video segments of incidents and um, encounters and um, joy and sadness. And, and ultimately that became my, uh, the story uh, um, that I left that center with. And um, <clears throat> a, a number of years later, probably about three years later, um, when I was actually writing, starting to write a book about Nikon, um, it was a time when they released a movie, and you may or may not remember this, but it was a movie called Defending Your Life with Meryl Streep and Albert Brooks. And mostly it was a comedy. And, and uh, if, if you can still get a hold of it, I would really recommend it to people. Um, but uh, right in the beginning of the movie, I won't, try, won't, won't give away too much, right in the beginning of the movie, Albert Brooks dies in a car accident. And he's taken to this place, which is kind of like a temporary place that you go um, until they, and it's not clear who they are, but they, the powers that be, decide whether you're going to move forward um, or you're going to go back to Earth and have a new life and try again. And so he's in this temporary place. And one of the main um, uh, exercises that they do to make this decision is they actually bring you into a room that's almost like a courtroom. And you actually have a representative that's almost like an attorney. And um, you present scenes from your life where in which you did things that you're very proud of, you know. So... Um, you know, maybe you, uh, your brother was drowning and you saved his life at one point, or um, uh, maybe you, <clears throat> there was a, you know, a, a, a bug that got caught in a web, web and you let him go, or maybe uh, um, you just did something great on a sports team. You scored the winning basket and then in the state championship. So you present these scenes where you're very proud of how you lived, but then scenes are presented to you that you have to watch where you're not so proud, where you did things that were were selfish, where you did things that were mean, where you um, lost your temper and maybe yelled or was angry at people, maybe you cheated in certain ways, um, and you now actually watch these scenes from your life. And it was fascinating me, for me to watch that film because it was very similar in theme from what I had gone through in my retreat, you know, watching these little um, uh, edited segments, video segments of my life. Um, and in the movie, they're using that as a basis for deciding where you go from here because you're already dead. Um, and so I felt when I got out of this retreat that I actually did have a new chance at life, that I had looked at my life in, um, 
at least as sincere and honest way as I could at the time. I had seen some things I did that I really was ashamed of, that I really wasn't proud of. Um, I had seen how selfish I was, but I had also seen how loved and supported I was. Um, I saw how much my parents had done for me um, instead of um, thinking for so many years how they had neglected me and had done a, such a poor job as my parents. And instead I saw you know, all the, the wonderful privileges that I had as a kid and everything that was given to me um, in terms of transportation and school and books and swimming lessons and piano lessons. And I could just go on and on. It was a very long list. Um, it gave me a very deep sense of appreciation for my parents. It gave me a very deep sense of gratitude towards lots of these key people in my life, friends, coaches. Um, and it also gave me a, a sense of remorse um, and guilt for some of the things I had done in terms of ex-girlfriends, in terms of other people in my life, even my parents. Um, but the sense that now that I had seen those things, there was the possibility of moving forward in my life in a different way um, than I had lived up to that point. So that was really the beginning of my work in that field, but it was a very personal beginning. And I think it's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this work, because it really did um, send my life in a very different direction, um, that where I'm living, the woman I'm married to, the, the job I have in terms of running the center, the books that I've written, my kids, all of this really I can trace back to this shift that occurred um, when I spent those two weeks in Japan kind of stepping back and reflecting on my life. So how do we incorporate something like this into our lives without having to go to a retreat center in Japan? Well, <clears throat> fortunately, um, it's, not, it's not something that is necessary in order to incorporate some kind of reflective practice in your life. And I think that you know, a lot of people now, probably a lot of, of your listeners, have some kind of exercise program, right, that, that you do, whether it's once a week or five times a week. It may be yoga, it may be running um, or jogging or biking, but, but many people now have decided it's important to have exercise as, a, as one um, key element of their routine during the course of a week. Uh, and I think, you know, we, we see that in exercise and um, we see it in other areas of our life. Um, including things like social media. But what we don't see is very many people who are building in a practice um, of self-reflection, who are setting aside even a small amount of time on a daily or even weekly basis to step back and reflect on how they've lived. And, um, and so that's, I think, where we can start. You don't have to start by um, going off to Japan or, or even coming here to Vermont and doing a week-long retreat. You can start by just basically... Um, taking a few minutes before you go to bed and using those same three questions uh, in what's called daily Nikon or daily reflection. So you look back on your day at the end of today when um, you're getting ready for bed or you're even in bed. You just have a little piece of paper or notebook and you use those same three questions and you write down everything you can think of that you received that day. So I right now I'm receiving the use of my computer. I'm receiving the, um, <clears throat> the use of uh, Wi-Fi in terms of having this discussion um, with you, I'm, I'm receiving your time and attention uh, and questions from you that allow me to talk about work that I feel very passionate about. Um, I'm actually receiving heat from my house because I live in Vermont and outside right now it's about 40 degrees. So I'm re receiving the benefit of heat. Um, I have eyeglasses on. I'm receiving that as helping me with my sight. So these are very practical things I'm talking about, not some 
a grandiose conceptual idea. And, you, and we list those things. Uh, and then the second question, what, what did I give today? What did I give to others, right? Um, I fed my dog today. I took him out for a walk. Um, I made a cup of tea for my wife. I answered an email for someone who wrote to me with a question. Um, and so I have a list of things that I've given. And then finally, this third question, which is often the most difficult question for us to face, which is what troubles and difficulties have I caused to others, right? And so um, if I was late for an appointment or um, if I uh, wasted food because I left it in the refrigerator too long and I ended up having to throw it out, um, if I drove, even just driving my kids to school um, requires me to pollute the air, right? Um, so <clears throat> looking at um, things we did, things that we said, the way we handled ourselves throughout the day, and how did that cause trouble or difficulty for others? And that's really you, uh, a structure for reflecting on your day. Um, and you can do that in somewhere between 15 and 30 minutes in the evening. Um, and if you, if you do it you know, every night or every other night or even over the weekend on the week, um, it adds this element to your life of being able to reflect on yourself um, and how you're living. And it allows you to step back from getting caught up into the in the day-to-day kind of busyness of life where we're so caught up in what we're doing that we don't really step back and ask ourselves these bigger questions of, am I doing this with integrity? Um, how are other people supporting me? Uh, is there something I need to be doing for others? Um, what kind of values am I bringing to my work? Um, how is what I'm doing actually hurting people or causing them trouble? So without self-reflection, it's very easy for us to just basically go through the day and, and go through our day and do the best we can. And at the end of the day, feel kind of wiped out or tired or even maybe successful. Um, but it's very hard for us to make any fundamental changes if we don't at some point step back and look at how we're living. And, that, and it's one of the reasons that I started a retreat center was to have a place where people could do that. So we've talked about the the Nikon piece. What about the Shomamurita piece? Well, the other element of Japanese psychology that I was introduced to um, was something called Marita therapy, which is often referred to the action side of Japanese psychology. And uh, Marita is actually the name of a Japanese psychiatrist who lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, who developed an approach uh, initially towards dealing with anxiety that um, basically was based on people learning how to cope with their feelings and internal experience um, without shifting their energy towards always trying to fix themselves. In other words, uh, maybe I can best represent this with just kind of a simple example that someone has to make a presentation in front of a group. Um, And and many of us are very anxious and, and nervous about standing up in front of a group and speaking publicly. Um, So we start feeling anxious. We may have manifestations of that anxiety in terms of sweaty palms or sweaty forehead, or we feel a kind of tension in our stomach or shoulders. Um, And more traditional approaches would basically say that you you would use self-talk or some other methods to try to get yourself to feel confidence, to do affirmations and try to feel like you, you can do this, you're successful, you know what you're talking about. Um, so essentially what you're doing is you're trying to change your internal state from, let's say, anxiety to comfort and confidence. 
The problem is that for many people who have tried to do that, you find um, that your scorecard isn't that great, that a lot of times actually you can't do it. You might be able to do it a little bit or temporarily, but we start with the premise in, in Morita therapy that your emotions and your feelings are primarily uncontrollable by your will. If you feel depressed, you can't will yourself to feel happy. You just can't. Um, <clears throat> if you feel anxious, you can't will yourself to feel confident. And so what is the alternative to trying to work on your inner experience to change it? And the alternative is essentially to accept it. In other words, if you feel anxious, you accept the fact that you're feeling anxious. You don't do anything to try to fix or change your internal experience. But instead, what you do is you shift your attention to something constructive in the example I'm using, which is how can you prepare for your talk? So instead of trying to fix your feeling state, you're actually trying to, to um, make sure that you go into that talk really knowing the material you have, really knowing the content, maybe even ant anticipating certain questions. Um, so there's a shift from trying to work on your feelings um, towards trying to basically have a constructive response to the situation that you're in. Um, and that means you go into that situation um, feeling anxious. But what we find is that in many cases, um, once you're in the situation, the one that, that stimulated that anxiety, um, once you're, you're actually involved in it and you're immersed in it and your attention is on what you're doing instead of on your feeling state, um, you no longer feel anxiety because you're no longer focusing on your internal state. You're focusing on what you need to do in the situation. Um, so this becomes a very different approach that comes from the East. It's much more consistent with, for instance, um, Zen meditation, where your instructions are to sit in a very um, still kind of way and to focus on your breath and maybe even to count your breath. And as you're meditating, if you find that, that thoughts pop in, up into your mind, which they almost always do, um, your instructions from, from your teacher are often to notice those thoughts, accept them, and simply bring your attention back to your breath. Right? So in other words, we don't give the stage to those thoughts or feelings, whatever they are. Um, we simply notice them, accept them, and then shift our attention back to our breathing. And that's a very kind of simple um, but traditional approach to meditation in a lot of traditions, including Zen, which was my early training. Um, and we're essentially asking people to do something very similar. In fact, teaching people to do something very similar. When you find yourself in a situation in which you feel um, anxious or you feel fearful or you feel shy or lonely or any one of those uncomfortable feelings, to just notice that feeling state, notice the thoughts that come with it, accept them. Um, but instead of shifting your attention back to your breath, shift your attention to the circumstances you're in and what you need to be doing at that moment. Um, and so it's a very different uh, um, approach. It comes from a very different kind of um, uh, philosophical foundation than you would find in, in more traditional um, approaches to Western therapy. Is it something that has to be practiced in order to get good at it? Um, you know, I actually think that that's pretty much true of anything, <laughs> that, right. that we, we always need to practice to get good at it. And um, this is no exception. Um, but I think one of the things I do believe is that by practicing certain skills and, and in the model that I have that comes from Japanese psychology, um, there's uh, four different skills. One of them is self-reflection, which I've talked about. 
Uh, the one we're talking about now is called coexisting with your internal experience or coexisting with uncomfortable feelings. Um, <clears throat> another skill is working successfully with your attention. And the fourth skill is acceptance. And the more we practice those skills, um, the more we get better at them. And I would suggest that actually those skills make up the heart of what we should be thinking of as mental health. In other words, if we become competent um, at those four skills, at accepting things, at working with our attention, um, at uh, coexisting with our internal experience, but taking constructive action um, and, and, and self-reflection, if we become good at that, that addresses, I think, the vast majority of mental health problems and issues that we face in our life. And if we start looking at mental health as something that is a skill and can be learned, we take it out of the, the model of something that's kind of um, a part of us, a part of our personality or personality disorder or um, uh, something that is a diagnosis that we have that's treated as a disease, which in many cases the suggestion is that we have to be on medication or that there's very little that we can do about that. Um, unless we're in therapy for a long time. But here's a model of mental health that comes from Japanese psychology that really says we can actually learn to be skillful in these areas that then produce the experience of positive mental health for us. Well, I, I think that makes just a, a really beautiful way to wrap up our conversation. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I would say authenticity. Um, uh, to me, um, that that's almost um, necessary for something to be thought of as unmistakable, is that it's authentic. And there's a wonderful little poem that comes from uh, um, the Zen tradition about a maple leaf. Uh, and it's a simple poem about a maple leaf. You, you can imagine the fall foliage here in Vermont. We have maple trees. Here's this beautiful colored maple leaf. And it's in this moment where it detaches from the branch and it begins to fall. And as it falls, it's spinning, right? Um, so that as you watch it fall, if you could actually catch this in slow motion, you see that you can actually see both sides of that maple leaf, the front and the back. And that's authenticity. Authenticity is when we go through our life and we present ourselves in the world and we're not trying to hide the backside, but we're basically presenting um, who we really are and, and what we really are. And, and we're not, there's no energy or investment towards trying to present a particular persona or image to others. But this is how we are, just like that maple leaf. Um, when you encounter um, this person, you're encountering everything about them without any energy that they're using to try to hide a part of them. Um, and to me, when you encounter someone like that or something like that, um, then they're unmistakable. Awesome. Well, this has been really, really thought-provoking uh, and eye-opening, and I, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your stories and your insights with all the listeners at The Unmistakable Creative. Well, I, I enjoyed speaking with you. You have a wonderful show. I've listened to, to um, several of your other shows. I feel very honored to be a guest on this show, and I, I wish you the best of luck in terms of um, moving forward with your own life and, and um, developing your own contribution to the world. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Wednesday on The Unmistakable Creative. Business-related 
relationships are often a reflection of just circumstance. Like, you know, we're, we're, we have these relationships with people who work down the hall from us or who, you know, we used to work with or they're in, you know, in our industry rather than being really intentional about it. And one of the things that I advocate everyone to do is put together what I call your conversations list, which is a list of the 50 people who you'd like to build or deepen a relationship with over the course of the next 12 months. Hmm. And what that does is it gives you a roadmap. It gives you a list of people who you should really be focusing your energies on because you see them as being critical to your business moving forward, your career moving forward. Former White House staff writer and attorney John Carcran joins us to talk about how we go from relationships to revenue. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. 
head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.